Good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Hope you had a good weekend. Today, it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wynn, one of the most respected public health experts in the country. On Friday, the CDC issued a warning that the U.S. is experiencing elevated RSV activity, particularly among young children. There's also been a rise in COVID-19 cases, especially in the Midwest and here in the Mid-Atlantic region. And fewer people are getting a flu shot than in years past. And there's been a concurrent increase in flu cases across the country. Dr. Wen is here to take your questions about the health issues that are top of mind for you. You can call us at 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at WIPR. Org. Dr. Lena Wen is a former health commissioner of Baltimore. She's a columnist on health matters for the Washington Post, a medical expert on CNN, a scholar at George Washington University, and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's also a great friend of our show, and she joins us on Zoom. Hey, Lena, welcome back. Hi, Tom. Wonderful to speak to, to speak with you as always. So, tell us a little bit about this respiratory illness in China. Uh, people hear about uh, an uptick in, you know, this kind of thing, and they think, uh-oh, boy, is that going to be another repeat of something like COVID-19? Yeah, I certainly understand why people are concerned after everything that we've gone through with COVID. When we hear about respiratory illnesses, we hear about pneumonias being on the rise. When we see the pictures emerging, especially on Chinese social media, on um, the waiting rooms in pediatric hospitals becoming full, it's important that we find out more. And the World Health Organization has issued a number of statements about this. So it seems like, unlike back in 2019, the Chinese government has become um, has been a lot more forthcoming. Now, it's understandable, again, that there is distrust because of the lack of transparency over COVID-19. But this time does appear to be different. They were forthcoming with allowing health officials to share data. And the data so far actually paint a picture that's consistent with what the U.S. Canada and many other countries saw in past seasons, which essentially is that when we had stricter mitigation measures and were implementing, especially in schools, distancing and pods and um, and not having playdates and remote learning, etc., kids were not only um, shielded from COVID, but they also were not getting other common respiratory illnesses, things like rhinovirus, adenovirus, the common cold. Um, they were not getting RSV, influenza in large numbers, for example. And then when the mitigation measures became, began to be um, to be lifted here in the U.S. and other places, we saw large increases in respiratory infections. That's what it appears China is going through now, just a year or two later than other countries. But that, again, is to be expected because even last December, China still had some of the most restrictive mitigation measures in the world. They ended their zero policy, um, uh, uh, zero COVID policy about a year ago. And so this is their first winter, their first full, the first full winter of not having these mitigation measures. And so when you put that into context, it seems that that is by far the most common um, um, 
um, explanation for what's happening. What's also reassuring is that we're not seeing, based on these reports, of new symptoms. There's no new pathogen identified. The individuals affected are not getting more sick. And so this really seems to be similar to what happened in the U.S. in past years and is reason for us to have caution and continued attention, but not panic and alarm. And certainly this is not the time to call for travel restrictions, as some politicians have already done. So the fact that it's not a new pathogen is very very important. And uh, the fact, as you say, that it seems to kind of mirror what happened here in the United States. Um, But there is here in the United States an increase in pediatric RSV. Uh, We've talked now the last many times you've been on the show for the Health Watch uh, about the three vaccines that, you know, people really need to get RSV, flu, and the latest uh, booster for COVID-19. But the uptake, the uptake rather, uh, of those Um, vaccines is much lower than health officials would like to see. And that is leading, uh, particularly in the case of flu, evidently, across the country. uh, Now we're seeing increases in flu cases. That's right. And again, Tom, some of this is to be expected given the time of year that we're in. We um, have always had um, well before COVID-19 um, became um, be, uh, uh, emerged as an issue, we've always had increased activity in respiratory virus in the fall and in the winter. RSV, you mentioned the respiratory syncytial virus, is an extremely common virus. Almost every child contracts it before the age of two, according to the CDC. So right now is peak RSV season. The numbers that we're seeing are not out of the ordinary. And we're also seeing an uptick in influenza cases. Again, not out of the ordinary. Flu season usually starts um, at around this time. I do want to remind people who are worried, again, important for us to take precautions, important for us to take the preventive measures that we can. It's not too late to get your flu vaccine, not to let not too late to get your COVID vaccine. It's not too late if you're 60 and older and eligible for the RSV vaccine, not too late to get it. Um, But I do want to remind people that things were much worse last year at this time. Last November, at the end of November, early December, our children's hospitals were so full that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association were calling on President Biden to declare a state of emergency around um, pediatric hospital bed shortage. We are not nearly at that point. We're actually at about a third of the hospitalizations in children as we were um, last year at this time. And so, yes, again, it's something to be concerned about. Um, We need to carefully monitor that the situation and take preventive measures where we can. But I think perhaps after all the trauma that people went through with COVID, there might be a tendency to say, oh, my goodness, look, here we go again. But this is really not what we saw during the peak of COVID and also not even what we saw last year when we had this big rebound of other viral illnesses following the COVID mitigation measures being lifted. Um, But we are seeing lagging vaccination rates. I mean, the health officials, CDC is reporting uh, about a 4% increase in flu-related doctor's visits, for example. So 4% is not, you know, crisis mode by any means, but um, it's related to lower rates of vaccination than in in the past. Um, Is there any particular speculation uh, as to why that is? Yeah, it's a great question. And there are some hypotheses as to why. 
One is that there may be vaccine fatigue. After hearing all about COVID shots over and over again, and now people are told to get their, another round of COVID shots and, and their flu shot, at least anecdotally, I have heard of people saying, well, I already got the COVID shot. Do I really need the flu vaccine? Well, you do, because these are two different viruses, and the two shots will aim at two different things, which people understand, but I think this really needs to be said. Um, some other people may have not had the flu in previous years because of mitigation measures and then think that they're protected from it. But if they're out and about now, and especially if they did not get the flu in recent years, they're probably more susceptible to it and more susceptible to severe effects. Um, and I think we cannot discount the fact that vaccines have been polarized and politicized, and there's a lot of misconception and misinformation around the vaccines. But it still needs to be said that vaccines remain one of the biggest public health triumphs. Um, and that includes childhood immunizations, as well as vaccines that help to protect the most vulnerable from severe illness. Dr. Lena Wen is our guest. It's the Midday Health Watch. Our number, if you have a question for Dr. Wen, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at WIPR. Org. So, Lena, uh, one other dimension of this, uh, which is really surprising, at least to a layperson like me, is that there have been reported reports of shortages of, for example, the RSV vaccine. I haven't heard reports of shortages of the flu vaccine or of the COVID booster, but RSV, uh, there are pedi pediatricians who are scrambling trying to find uh, this vaccine for uh, their their young patients. Um, how can that happen? I mean, given that we had COVID-19, didn't we learn uh, how to predict these things? Didn't we learn what the supply, uh, you know, didn't, didn't we have the, the wherewithal to figure out what the supply needs to be? And uh, what, what have you heard about uh, pediatricians not being able to get the drug to administer to their patients? Yeah, so I want to um, first clarify. So there are um, two, um, or maybe I should say three um, uh, shots that can be given for RSV. So one type is the vaccine that's given to older individuals. So people 60 and, and, and older are able to be eligible or they're, they're eligible to receive the RSV vaccine that helps to prevent them from getting RSV and helps them um, to, uh, to prevent from getting severely ill. And older individuals in, in, uh, and newborns are the most susceptible to severe illness. That's one. The second is a vaccine that's given to pregnant women in their third trimester. So for um, pregnant women who are 32 to 36 weeks pregnant, they can receive the RSV vaccine then those antibodies would be conveyed to um, to their baby and help to protect their baby during the newborn period. The third is the one that I think you're talking about, Tom, which is an antibody shot. It's actually not a vaccine, but it's an antibody shot called nirsivimab um, uh, that is that has just been approved this year, um, and it's approved to be given to infants who are less than eight months old and also to children eight to nineteen months old who are at increased risk for severe RSV, for example, because of prematurity or because of underlying heart or lung issues. It's my understanding that it's this drug, this antibody. So again, not a vaccine because the vaccines stimulate antibody production. This is the antibody itself that's given to, uh, to babies. 
And it's my understanding that that is in short supply. And it's been in such short supply that the CDC has even issued essentially rationing guidelines saying that babies under six months old who have who are particularly susceptible to respiratory illness should get this um, more, uh, perhaps more than others. You know, I, I don't really know why um, this has happened. I think some of it may be that it's new. It's the first season that this has ever been made available. And I um, and you had mentioned potential shortages with the, the vaccines, the RSV vaccine or COVID or other things that I am hearing is also occurring in different parts of the country. We don't really have that problem here in Baltimore, but people who live in rural areas where maybe there are two pharmacies and maybe neither are carrying the COVID booster, they're having to travel to other places. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the um, relative lack of interest in the boosters um, and, and these other vaccines, along with the fact that because the public health emergency has ended, the COVID booster is no longer free. And instead, it's something that must be purchased and then reimbursed through insurance. And so I think the additional administrative barriers have added um, some ad some additional challenges too. Yeah, and we should mention that here in Baltimore, uh, the city health department is making it available without charge for people on Medicaid, for people who don't have insurance. So there are options if you are underinsured or uninsured uh, to get the COVID booster. Uh, and again, it's just, I, I think you're, you're, you're uh, comment about vaccine fatigue is really well taken. I think a lot of people are just sort of sick of thinking about it, sick of uh, worrying about it, and uh, so they're they're not getting the the vaccinations that they could get that could, as you say, protect them from serious illness. Um, let's go to the phones. Karen is on the line in Baltimore. Welcome to the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Wen. Well, thank you. Um, I'm like the poster child for vaccines. I just got my uh, COVID shot literally about 10 minutes ago at Rite Aid. I'm at the supermarket right now. And the only reason I waited till now is I had gotten a booster over the summer because I was volunteering in an emergency room and we had some COVID patients out in California where I live now. But I just, I mean, I have had every vaccine known to man that we, is available. And I always tell people, you know, you say, oh, I'm tired of getting shots. But, you know, wait until you're in the hospital with severe COVID or shingles, which is complete misery, or bad pneumococcal pneumonia, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just saw so many really terrible things happen to people in the 40 years that I was a nurse. And to me, anything you could do to help prevent a bad outcome or going through that kind of suffering is so worth doing. It makes me sad that there is so much anti-vaccine feel. And literally, I think people are just going to have to get really sick and die before people start realizing what a blessing we have in the vaccine. Sure. And of course, well, thank you for that perspective. I appreciate it, Karen. And of course, we've had uh, many, many people, millions of people die from COVID-19 uh, over the course of that pandemic, which, as Dr. Wen mentioned, is no longer considered a public health emergency, but it's still a public health reality. Uh, any quick comment on Karen's call, uh, Lena, before we take a quick break? I would just thank Karen for reminding us about how essential vaccines are, how they are safe, effective, and life-saving. I'm really concerned about the um, the rise in many parts of the country um, of anti-vaccine sentiment that is going to end up eroding the um, the protections we have for childhood immunizations. And we're going to see a resurgence of things like measles. Um, and that's just, it's terrifying and totally preventable and therefore really tragic. It's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. We'll have more with Dr. Wen after a quick break, and you can join us at 
662-8780. You can email us midday at WIPR.org. I'm Tom Hall. Stick around. You're listening to Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on the show tomorrow, Dr. Miho Tanaka, an orthopedic surgeon who teaches at the Harvard Medical School, will join us for another edition of what we jokingly call What Hurts Today, a show in which Dr. Tanaka answers your questions about, well, what hurts, orthopedically speaking, that is. So hope you can join us tomorrow with Dr. Tanaka. If you just joined us today, my guest is another one of our favorite doctors, Dr. Lena Wen, one of America's most trusted and knowledgeable public health experts. In 2019, Dr. Wen was included in Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people. She's an emergency physician. She teaches at the George Washington University School of Public Health. She writes a column for the Washington Post. She's a medical expert for CNN, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of Lifelines, a doctor's journey in the fight for public health. We are grateful that she's been a regular guest on our show for many years. She joins us on Zoom, and you are welcome to join us as well. 410-662-8780. Our email is midday at wipr.org. So, Lena, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post which really surprised me, and that was uh, calling, uh, making a, a clarion call and sounding a mini alarm about screening for lung cancer. Uh, and you say that even former smokers who quit more than 15 years ago should still be screened for lung cancer. That surprised me, and uh, this is something that I think is not uh, on a lot of people's radar screens. I was also surprised, frankly, Tom, because lung cancer is the number one killer of cancers among Americans. It kills more than 130,000 Americans a year, which, again, surpasses the numbers for any other cancers. And yet, when you look at diagnosis, only about 25% of cases of lung cancer are diagnosed in early stages. And a large part of that is because the screening rates are so much lower than for other common cancers. For example, for breast cancer screening, though there's more work to be done, of course, to increase those numbers, more than 75% of women between 50 and 74 received a mammogram in the past two years. A similar number in a similar age group received colorectal cancer screenings. But when you look at lung cancer screenings, according to the American Lung Association, less than 6% of eligible Americans are receiving annual low-dose CT scans, which is what is recommended for those for those who are at high risk. And in some states, the screening rates are as low as 1%, which is really abysmally and quite shockingly low. And so the American Cancer Society just put out updated guidelines that hopefully will increase the number of people who will go for screenings. And I think this is important for hospitals, for physicians, for insurance companies to know and to not 
delay in implementing these recommendations. And so um, what the American Cancer Society previously did is they recommended annual screenings for people who are 55 to 74 years old who smoked for at least 30 pack years, which means a pack year is the number of years you smoked times the number of, of packs per day. So 30 pack year could be 30 years and every day you smoke a pack. Um, and American Cancer Society also said those who quit smoking less than 15 years ago should continue the screenings. But if you quit smoking more than 15 years ago, you don't need these screenings anymore. Well, the new guidelines widen these eligibility changes quite a bit. So the age is now 50 to 80. The smoking history is now 20 pack years and not 30. And the American Cancer Society eliminated the years since quitting metric. And what that means is even if you quit smoking 30 years ago, let's say that you smoked heavily as a teenager and in your 20s, and now you're in your 60s or 70s, you should still, you're still considered to be at high risk for lung cancer and should still um, get screening. And I just wanted to emphasize this point about, um, about smoking history. 80 to 90% of individuals with lung cancer have smoking history. That doesn't mean that you can't get lung cancer if you, if you never smoked. There's secondhand smoke, there's radon, there are other environmental hazards and things that, that um, and types of, uh, of rarer lung cancers that may not be related to smoking. But smoking is by far the number one risk factor for lung cancer. And I hope that more people will follow these recommendations and receive the lung cancer screening, which again is a CAT scan, a low dose um, CAT scan every year. And it is still true that when you do quit smoking, because when I quit smoking 37, 38 years ago, um, I was very happy to know that your lungs heal over time, that the, the, the deleterious effects of smoking uh, were mitigated once you quit, uh, the, the lungs got better uh, over time. Is that, was I fooling myself? I mean, it, it was a great motivator to, to stay off cigarettes, but um, is, it, is it true that, uh, you know, you, you get better once you quit? Yes, it is. And I certainly do not mean to imply um, that people should just continue smoking because why not? <laughs> so, yeah, <right>. um, <laughs> no, we, we know that there are many benefits of smoking cessation, that stopping smoking uh, can um, and will lower your risk for lung cancer, lowers your risk for other um, problems associated with smoking, including heart disease and stroke and pneumonia and other things like that. The issue, though, is according to the American Cancer Society and their recent um, and their recent synopsis of the data, you're still at elevated risk compared to somebody who never smoked. So, 15 years after quitting, your risk of lung cancer is 10 times greater compared to the risk of people who never smoked. Even after 30 years, the risk of dying from lung cancer is still three to four times higher compared to the risk of somebody who never smoked. And so what the American Cancer Society said also is that your risk of lung cancer increases too with age. And at a certain point for individuals who may have, who may have smoked heavily in their youth and now maybe into their 60s and 70s, they are now at elevated risk because of their former smoking history as well as now age. And so um, those individuals should still get screened. Let's go to the phones. I think we have some uh, questions uh, back to our conversation about vaccines. Let's start with Lynn, who's on the line from Westminster. Welcome to the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Wen. Hi, Tom. I'm, I'm always lovely to speak to both of you and, and listen to both of you. Um, I'll try to be brief. I just wanted to recommend an amazing book, and I learned about vaccines from this book. 
it's a it's a book of fiction, and it's by Geraldine Brooks, who's an Australian author who's won lots of awards. She she wrote a book about a town. It was fiction. She did a lot of homework about a town in England that quarantined itself and saved itself from the Black Plague in medieval times. And in that book, and I believe it's called A Sense of Wonder. I read it a lot. It's like a what? This book is about the plague. But it, she got n- numerous kudos for this book, A Sense of Wonder by Geraldine Brooks. And, and, and in that book, herbalists in this ancient times had the tradition of using a needle from a tree or a thorn and, and um, inoculating people, um, vaccinating people, essentially, we use that word vaccine now, um, by um, I- injecting a teeny, teeny, teeny little bit of, from a sick person into a well person to try to ramp up their immune system. Hmm. So it's a, it's, it was really, really, really a, a great book. And it's fiction, but it's based on a lot of facts. So I just great. wanted to throw that out there to the world. It's a well, good read. Thank you, Lynn. I appreciate that uh, recommendation. And Geraldine Brooks, a wonderful, wonderful novelist. So uh, whether it's about vaccines or not, uh, it's always worth reading. She's a terrific writer. Let's go to Edward in Baltimore. Yeah, my quick question is to Dr. Wynn, is, has there been a study done uh, on a, just strictly an economic basis about the difference in what it costs to vaccinate everyone for free, who wants it, obviously, and the amount of money being spent on hospitals because people get COVID, either three or four day hospital visits or the long term COVID? That's my question. Thank you. So, Dr. Wynn, what do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. And a number of these types of analyses have been done. But I think that it's it's tricky because the calculation now is also going to be very different than with the primary series of the vaccine. A lot of people have already gotten COVID. A lot of people have gotten multiple rounds of shots before. And so continuing to provide the vaccines free of charge will give us less economic benefit in terms of cost savings than it did earlier on in the pandemic. Now, I am not at all saying that we shouldn't be getting vaccines and ideally free of charge and without the barriers in place. But I also think that there is a case to be made, including an economic case to be made, to regard COVID the same as we do influenza or that we do um, RSV or that we do other things that um, that um, we bill insurance for. Um, and um, at, at some point, COVID was in a totally distinct category because it was a new virus. It was causing this global pandemic and unsettled everything for us. But at some point, things do have to return back to how things are in our admittedly very dysfunctional healthcare system. But you can't always make COVID an exception. At some point, it returns to the same level as everything else. And I think that's what the multiple rounds of analyses have shown us about where COVID should be at this point in time. All right. Thanks for that call. Um, and Lena, we have an uh, emailer from Towson, Peter, who says, how about cigarette use versus marijuana use when it comes to changes in lung cancer rates, uh, d- does one uh, expose oneself to the dangers of lung cancer from uh, smoking cannabis? 
That's really interesting. And there are some there's some new literature about this that I saw but have not had a chance to carefully review. But I think the short version of this is we cannot be referring to cannabis as something that's totally harmless. I recognize that some people may obtain benefit from it, whether it's psychological, whether there may be some medicinal benefits. Um, maybe they just want to do this as part of their, their freedom of expression. But we should not be discounting the many harms of cannabis, including the harms when it comes to um, exacerbating lung problems, too. Uh, Maria says many of us have extensive smoking history from exposure to smoke from adults when we were children. Do we need to worry about cancer risk and screening? Maria doesn't say how old she is, but um, there certainly was a time when uh, all the grown-ups were smoking all the time uh, and a lot of kids were exposed. Um, if you were never a smoker, but you were one of those childrens in proximity to people who were, um, what about screening for them? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so at the moment, the recommendations do not call for additional screening for individuals who do not smoke themselves, um, but were exposed to secondhand smoke. Now, I do want to make a distinction here, which is that there's a difference between this regular annual preventive screening and getting checked out if you have any symptoms. Of course, if you have any symptoms, if you have particular concern, you need to get uh, you need to get tested. And I think if you had a very high burden, perhaps when when you were a child and um, over the course of many years, you may want to discuss with your primary care physician about your risk. And maybe there is a tailored recommendation for you. But on a population societal level, even though secondhand smoke is a risk factor for um, for for cigarette smoke, um, it is not part of the American Cancer Society's um, screening guidelines for that annual um, preventive um, screen through the annual, again, yearly low-dose CT scan. If you've just joined us, it's the Midday Health Watch with Dr. Lena Wen. I'm Tom Hall. So, Lena, I want to uh, talk about a subject that we uh, picked up on uh, once or twice uh, in some previous appearances, and that's about these weight loss drugs, Ozembic and Wigovi and etc. Um, and you wrote a piece in the Washington Post about uh, some things that are unknown about these weight loss drugs uh, that need to be kept in mind. Certainly, uh, some of the results that some people are having are very promising. People are dropping the pounds. Um, but you, you you raise some questions that are important to ask. What do you think? Yeah, so I think we first have to acknowledge how important these medications are, these GLP-1 agonists. And so semaglutide, which is also known as Wagovi and is an Ozempic, and then terzepatide, um, also known as, uh, as Manjaro. I mean, these are... Um, really transformative. They, ha um, they, they are, have been very effective at reducing weight, um, managing diabetes, even reducing cardiovascular complications later. But there are some major questions, one of which, and I think one of the most important is, do these drugs need to be used for a lifetime? Um, from the chronic disease perspective, if we think about obesity, as we do, um, heart disease and diabetes and such, it might make sense for them to be used for a lifetime because these drugs for diabetes are also used for many, many, many years. Um, but at the same time, it's not 
clear that a lot of people who are starting these medications know that they're in it for a lifetime. I mean, what about young people, for example, who are starting in their teens or 20s? They would be committing themselves to using these drugs for 80, 90 years. I mean, that's that's a really hefty burden to commit to. And we really don't know how the body will respond to many years on these drugs. For example, does effectiveness lessen over time? Are there complications that could increase in frequency over time? And so um, I, I believe there needs to be studies and the drug companies are not going to be incentivized to do these studies, but someone should do the studies on whether there is a way to reduce dose dosage or to wean people off over the course of time. Um, but whether that can happen um, is not known and I think is probably the number one remaining question. Some other questions will be, are people going to take the drugs long enough in order to, uh, to get health benefits? Um, a recent analysis of insurance company data found that less than one in three patients who started taking these medications for weight loss were still taking them a year later. So two thirds are quitting for some reason. And we need to figure out why, especially if the intention is for them to be using it for many, many years and not quitting within a year. And I think the third question is, how can we curb inappropriate use? Um, I spoke to a number of experts who work in obesity medicine on this issue, and they said, while it's true that many people with obesity and severe obesity are using these drugs to great effect, they're also seeing people who are not very overweight um, or maybe marginally overweight. And they're taking these drugs to um, um, to slim down to very low weights, maybe for appearance purposes that are not health related. And of course, that introduces a whole number of problems because when you have a medication, there are always side effects. And if there are really no medical benefits, then the side effects are going to outweigh the potential benefits. Um, and, uh, and I think this is something that the FDA can do a lot more to really educate and, uh, and crack down on, on inappropriate use. So I think in short, I think these drugs are potentially transformative, though there are a lot of unanswered questions. Yeah, and good questions to raise, and we are grateful as always. Dr. Lena Wen, a former Baltimore City Health Commissioner and the author of Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. She's a columnist for The Washington Post and a medical expert on CNN, among other duties. Thanks, Lena. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in the new year. Thank you, Tom. Quick break, and when we return, I will speak with the editors of a beautiful new book that celebrates Baltimore's vibrant art scene. But before we go to a break, it's our practice here on Midday to read the names of people who've lost their lives to violence in Baltimore City and to list their names on the Midday webpage. We do this to stand in witness to their untimely deaths and to remember their families and friends in their hour of grief. We get their names from a researcher named Ellen Worthing from the Baltimore Sun and from the Baltimore Police Department. So far this year, 250 people have been identified as victims of homicide in our city. Wallace Reed Allen was shot in 1995. Mr. Allen died in August of this year. Last week, his death was ruled a homicide due to complications he sustained from the 1995 shooting. Mr. Allen was 80 years old. Police have identified three of the five people who were killed in Baltimore last week. They are Inaya Smith, age 20, Charles Johnson, age 21, and Carlos Carazana Ricardo. He was 18 years old.
It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR.